Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Juliana Collins, who works as a therapist and a writer. Welcome, everyone, to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers. And for the first time in my life, I applied to be on Survivor. oh okay and i'm sarah an lpc from pennsylvania transplant from south jersey reacting to that later i'm straight cis white lady my pronouns are she her Uh, and i just got my first professional haircut since november 2019 oh my god how was it (laughs) It was fine. I remembered pretty quickly how hot I get under the under the the capes. Right, look, can we not gloss over? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> can we first say that it took all of my self control to not tell you I was going to drop a bomb on you I, today? Like, it's good. It's good. It it's took good. so. I was like, I got to get through. I got to get through this morning. I just wanted to send you like, get ready, get ready. Um, but yeah, I, no, I had, I was, I had no idea. And that was, that was perfect. So yeah. I, you got me. That's, I think that's the best <laughs> one so far. Um, I, yes, I applied to be on survivor. Mm-hmm. I, I've never thought that I would be able to do it before, but for mm-hmm. some reason now I'm like, you know what? It's time. It's time for me to be on survivor. <laughs> I'm probably not going to get on it, but Jeff Probst, if you're listening, I'd love to be on survivor because uh, we'll he does him. casting. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have been on casting calls before. <laughs> okay. I was almost on MTV's <laughs> True Life. Oh, for what? Because, spoiler alert, I have narcolepsy. And um, <laughs> when I was diagnosed, I was 18. And I was like, I'm going to make this into a true life. So I would check the MTV casting calls like website. And I was yeah. in college, so I had nothing else to do. Uh, and I, so there was one that was like true life. I have a embarrassing medical condition. I was like, this, this is works enough. And all my friends were like, we'll pretend to be really mean to you. And they helped me like, <laughs> you know, stretch the details a little bit. So I would be on, you know, like I, they would come and I had a call with them. I talked to MTV on the phone and the only reason why they couldn't come was because I lived in the dorms. Oh my so I could have been a reality TV star. Uh, I was so what also I like about that is you're interesting enough. Like they found your story. Yeah, the word was embarrassing. Medical. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I was almost in a Bollywood movie. Uh, <laughs> 
when I, I can't deal with all this info coming out at once. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is a lot. Uh, <laughs> when I was studying abroad in Berlin, I was in like a community orchestra when I was there. And uh-huh. they, for some reason, this like pr- film production company came to that orchestra and was like, we need people to be in this Bollywood film. Uh, and I was like, why not? You know, so I stayed late and they took pictures of us, but I looked too young. And also I was an American citizen. So I couldn't uh, get paid. I think it was like a thousand euros or something uh, to do this like one day shoot. But my stand partner, who's like just the person who shares a stand with you, uh, she she got picked and she said it was terrible. Oh, it was like four way? hours of, of straight playing. It was hot. They weren't very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But she did get paid like a thousand euros. So it's like your resume is full of really cool almost regarding <laughs> reality TV and or like atypical, you know, I mean, something like Bollywood. Oh. Yeah, I I can't remember. I'll have to housekeep that, the name of the movie because I can't remember it. But yeah, I, yeah, we're absolutely going to need that information. Like I. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so <laughs> maybe you'll see me on Survivor. I think if I get picked, I can't say anything. So uh I saw on (laughs) I saw on like our streaming services that I could watch Survivor if I subscribed to a certain channel and then I was like you know I'll just watch Too Hot to Handle instead (laughs) and then I watched the um I watched the teaser and I was like I don't I can't even get through this teaser so I'm just gonna just gonna keep watching Manifest nice no it's not it's it's a terrible show don't watch Manifest okay all right well, that's all about me and my almosts. Um. <laughs> you don't need to hear about my haircut. Um, <laughs> it looks the same. I'm going back in 10 weeks. Nice. As usual. Um, do we have any housekeeping? No. <laughs> no. Well, actually, my floor is completely dirty. My bed is unmade. The clothes are not folded because last time in housekeeping, I referred to something that wasn't even on the show at all. Uh, I said that that? there were two jump scares and it follows. Uh, We didn't talk about that on the episode. What happened was after we were done talking to Matt, we continued to talk about horror movies. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was in the episode. So I gave a housekeeping on it follows, even though we've never talked about it. It's also one of our Patreon uh, categories too. So the housekeeping is that we ask listeners to expunge it follows from the record. Uh, But then now you can add it back because now we've mentioned it um and also the fun thing about that is that we'll probably have a bonus episode with matt about horror movies in the future so yeah that's all the good and also the patreon is up so that's exciting too what's the site for that patreon.com slash tnd podcast many things many fun things there and enjoy the names of our levels which we update as we go and we (laughs) learn that maybe our titles aren't very nice (laughs) yeah Anyway. Yes, prepare for some uh, disappointment during our history lesson today. We're on one of our localized heroes. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's he was a hero. For, yeah. That's all for our fault for um, putting faith in a landowner from the 1700s. I think, I don't know if anybody saw it, honestly, because one of the tiers used to be Dr. Benjamin's because we mentioned Dr. Benjamin Rush a bunch. All the time. But then we were like, wait a minute. No. Let's change it to It Followers, even though we've never mentioned It Follows on the podcast. (laughs) Okay, good. So now we have all the context. Everybody's Mm -hmm. caught up. Everybody knows. Okay. Our house is clean. Ish. (laughs) I do like referring to it like, well, you know what? Now my floor is a little dirty today. I got a lot to share with y'all. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Story of my life. You said it. Thank nice. you. <laughs> All right. Well, join us after the break for our history lesson. And now it's time for our history lesson. The history lesson is compiled facts in the form of a narrative describing history, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today are socialworkers.org, mswcareers.com, wikipedia.org, online.simmons.edu, an article by Bessel van der Kolk entitled Trauma, Retreats and Advances, an article entitled Charcot, Janet, and French Models of Psychopathology by Olivier Walozinski and Julian Bogoslavsky. Fun fact, Olivier Walozinski also wrote an article entitled Everything You Wanted to Know About Yawning, but Never Dared to Ask. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to read that. Also, perfect. perfect pronunciation on those names. Oh, I was skimming, so thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, and our final article is by Yushena Umen. And it is entitled Mental Illness in Black Community, 1700 to 2019, A Short History. Trigger warning for today, there is going to be a lot of talk about racism, racial trauma, slavery, forced lobotomies and sterilization, abuse of slaves, children, and adults. Feel free to, with those trigger warnings, skip ahead about 15 minutes. Again, don't hold me to that time. But it is also very important information if you would like to stick around and listen. We're going to start today with the history of social work. The earliest origins of social work dating back to the Middle Ages were in church-based ministers to the poor, which evolved into the philanthropic and social justice movements of the 19th century. In the mid-19th century, reform efforts began to, in response to social injustices, such as the neglect of people with mental illnesses, the conditions of homeless and poor people, and concern for child laborers in factories and sweatshops. Founded in 1843, and 1853, respectively, two such organizations were the Association for the Improvement of the Condition of the Poor and the Children's Aid Society. They focused on addressing social issues such as child welfare and tenement housing. After the Civil War, dated 1861 to 1865, major, major social welfare initiatives such as the U.S. Sanitary Commission and the American Red Cross emerged. Charity boards were created as means to improve the management of social institutions. The first federal social welfare program, referred to as the Freedmen's Bureau, began in 1865 as a means to help newly emancipated slaves. The program was short-lived, however, as a lack of funds and political pressure prevented it from carrying out its mission. Congress shut down the Freedmen's Bureau in 1872. The modern social work profession grew from three distinct strands. The social work policies of poverty relief that grew from the English poor laws in the 17th century. And just for some context, these laws gave the local government the power to raise taxes as needed and use the funds to build and maintain almshouses, which we learned before are houses for the poor to live in. The second strand was the casework approach developed by the Charity Organization Society, CSO in Britain in the mid 19th century and the social and political action aimed at addressing social injustice that began with settlement house movement. 
And this movement is actually uh, pretty interesting if you want to do more research on that. It is a social movement that began in the 1880s and peaked around the 1920s in England and the U.S. Its goal was to bring the rich and poor of society together in both physical proximity and social interconnectedness. Its main objective was the establishment of settlement houses in poor urban areas in which volunteer middle-class settlement workers would live, hoping to share knowledge and culture with and alleviate the poverty of their low-income neighbors. The settlement houses provided services such as daycare, education, and healthcare to improve the lives of poor in these areas. I was I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool thing, but I'm a little bit suspect about the time period that it that it happened. And then when it yep. said that the middle class would share their culture, yep. <laughs> I was like, oh, yep, there it is. There it is. I know. I, I am going to, you know, you are you are uncultured swine. I'm gonna teach you a little bit about why painting is valuable and uh, maybe Yeah. Maybe teach you how to raise your kids in a way that wealthy people do. Which yeah, trash. Yeah. But I was excited for a minute, like they, they had it, like, okay, everybody living together, okay, oh, yep, there we go. Okay. You know, it's really disappointing, and definitely yeah. something we still see today, mm-hmm. um, pretty prevalent in, like, white feminism, and just, like, any middle class or above person feeling they can police people working class and below on how to live their best lives. Yeah. Right. Good, good note, Joanna. <laughs> The deepest roots of social work stem from the moral obligation to help society's most vulnerable citizens. As most world religions teach that we each have a duty to help the poor, social work is intrinsically linked with charity work. For example, during the Middle Ages, when the Christian church had wide influence in Europe, charity was considered a social obligation and a sign of piety. With the emergence of industrialization and urbanization in the late 19th and early 20th century, the work of the church in helping the poor began to be supplanted by the more formal social welfare services. The first professional medical social workers in England were called hospital almoners or quote lady almoners because they were in hospitals and they were doing care work, which we now call pink collar jobs. And they were, I'm assuming, ladies. Yes. You know, it's, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was going to talk about Survivor, <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> Well, so I'm watching the season that's uh, white collar versus anyway. blue collar versus no collar. And I was like, what collar would I be? And I guess I'd be a pink collar because I'm a healthcare worker. So well, it changes so much because it used to be like you, I mean, used to be, but I mean, as our parents tell us, as some parents tell us, it was get a degree and you'll be able to be white collar, but that's certainly not. It's no. a world oft dreamed upon. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, an alvener is a social service worker in a hospital or a distributor of alms which are free food, money, and other necessities given to the needy. In 1895, Mary Stewart became the first lady almoner in Britain. It wasn't until the 1960s that the profession was officially renamed medical social worker. Social work pioneer Jane Addams was one of the first women to receive a Nobel Peace Prize, which was awarded in 1931. Known best for establishing settlement houses in Chicago for immigrants in the early 1900s, Adams was, dedicate, Adams was a dedicated community, community organizer and peace activist. Frances Perkins, a social worker, was the first woman to be appointed to the cabinet of the U.S. president. As President Franklin D. Roosevelt, as his Secretary of Labor, Perkins drafted much of the New Deal legislation in the 1940s, which is pretty cool. Social worker and civil rights trailblazer Whitney M. Young Jr. 
became the executive director of the National Urban League while serving as dean for the Atlanta School of Social Work. He also served as president of NASW in the late 1960s. A noted expert in American race relations, Time Magazine acknowledged Young as a key inspiration for President Johnson's war on poverty. At the time, the poverty rate in the U.S. was 19%. It's currently at 13.7%. Johnson believed in expanding the federal government's roles in education and healthcare as poverty reduction strategies. Johnson stated, quote, our aim is not only to relieve the symptom of poverty, but to cure it and above all to prevent it. The first social work class was offered in the summer of 1898 at Columbia University. The social work profession celebrated its centennial in 1998. That year, several important artifacts from across the country were donated to the Smithsonian Institution to commemorate 100 years of professional social work in the United States. Today, many Americans enjoy the following privileges because of early social workers who saw miseries and injustices and took action inspiring others along the way and they are as follows the civil rights of all people regardless of gender race faith or sexual orientation are protected workers enjoy unemployment insurance disability pay workers compensation and social security people with mental illness and developmental disabilities are now afforded humane treatment medicaid and medicare give poor disabled and elderly people access to health care society seeks to prevent child abuse and neglect treatment for mental illness and substance abuse is gradually losing its stigma. Now, moving on to the history of trauma treatment. Pierre Janet, uh, who lived from 1859 to 1947, a philosopher turned physician and, and physician Jean-Martin Charcot, who lived from 1825 to 1893, made history with their research and work at La Salpetriere Hospital in Paris. Janet, in particular, articulated most of the relevant issues about trauma that were being that are being rediscovered today, such as getting stuck in reliving trauma, disassociating, and having trouble integrating new experiences and going on with one's life. Janet primarily used hypnosis with hospitalized trauma patients to help them put the experience to rest, but his work was largely eclipsed by that of Sigmund Freud in part because fully recognizing the devastating impact of trauma tends to be too overwhelming for mental health professionals and politicians alike. For example, Freud and his, and his mentor, Joseph Breuer, wrote some outstanding papers on the nature of trauma in the 1890s, but they later repudiated them because suggesting the occurrence of incest in upstanding middle-class families in Vienna was too disturbing for their colleagues. So, so this is also still happening right? We have oftentimes when clinicians and physicians try to advocate for new diagnoses going into the DSM, they are lobbied not only by the American Psychological Association, but also by insurance companies and also by pharmaceutical companies. So not only is research withheld or suppressed, but it's also completely ignored and typically people or folks that come with a much uh, more palatable uh, piece uh, piece that they want added to the DSM, they are going to be listened to with a little more ease. Mm -hmm. So ever since then, trauma has had a history of cycling between being recognized for the devastating long-term role it can play in people's lives and then going underground in the face of resistance to that idea. 
the horror of trench warfare that led to wide recognition of the symptoms of shell shock during World War I. But in 1917, the British general staff put out an edict forbidding the military to use the word shell shock to describe the condition because they assumed it would undermine the troops' morale. The same thing happened after World War II, when the world quickly forgot the price that we pay for sending young men and now women into combat. Yet all the symptoms that we read about in the newspapers, like suicide, drug addictions, family violence, homelessness, and chronic unemployment have been well documented after every war within modern memory, starting with the American Civil War. Nevertheless, in the 1980s, as a result of the work of many people like Charles Figley, who was a Marine vet from Vietnam and wrote the book called Trauma and Its Wake and started the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies, trauma began to attract more and more attention in mainstream psychiatry and psychology. Around that time, Judith Herrmann and Bessel van der Kolk began to study the relationship between borderline personality disorder and self-injurious behavior and early years of trauma and neglect at the hands of caregivers. However, in the early 1990s, just as happened in 1902, 1917, and 1947, the study of the trauma movement began to gather steam. As the study of the trauma movement began to gather steam, there came a backlash. In this case, it came in the form of the false memory movement or, quote, the memory wars which tried to discredit the stories of abuse that our clients told us by calling them the results of therapists systematically implanting false memories in their minds. Much of this movement was fueled by the Roman Catholic Church as it was facing innumerable charges of priests, sexual abuse of children, and by psychologists who could make a good living in forensic settings disputing the allegations by victims of sexual abuse. After the suits against the church were settled, the false memory industry disappeared with it. So fun or unfun fact, this was around the time also, the memory wars in the early 90s, it was like right before and during satanic panic. So, so these two were growing and fluctuating around the same time. And Roseanne Barr was actually one of the first celebrities to come forward and say, I just remembered that both my parents abused me. And then all of a sudden this flood of both celebrities and then and then just like regular citizens came forward with like any intrusive thought. And I, I can imagine that most of them were true, but most people were also bringing up memories that were that were false. And um, a lot of accusations were made. A lot of, a lot of psychologists and a lot of therapists pushed people to accuse when they weren't even sure if memories were implanted or if they were real. It was, um, it was a very, it was a very strange time. Yeah. Um, one of the results of the controversy surrounding the false memory backlash was that the trauma field got split into two parallel areas of development, with basically all the research funding being directed to the military and the veterans. Any other area of research, child abuse and neglect, and women's studies was underfunded and therefore unable to garner enough high-quality studies to determine scientifically how best to treat this population. As a result, our field became one of passionate claims but little solid scientific evidence which I think music therapists can definitely speak to a little yeah. bit and all the other cats that we've interviewed thus far. Cats are creative art therapists. Nice. Nonetheless, some key rediscoveries have advanced trauma treatment. One has been the recognition of the role that dissociation plays in the aftermath of trauma and how, in various ways, treatment must address the personality structures that can compete or alternate with each other when someone is traumatized. 
Another major advance was the emergence of EMDR in the 1990s. It's the first approach that showed that we didn't need to rely on drugs or their traditional talking cure to get traumatized people to leave their traumatic memories behind. Similarly, body psychotherapists have recognized that, quote, the body keeps the score when it comes to trauma. And that is the title of Bessel van der Kolk's book, which is why it's in quotes in his article that we used for this source. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm in the middle of reading it. it it's pretty uh, illuminating how new the, uh, the treatment yeah. of trauma is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he, he obviously has been a pioneer in that field, as well as some of the folks that he works with in his, um, I don't believe he works there anymore, but the facility that he developed in Boston, I think is called the Trauma Center, if you're mm. interested in looking that up on your own time. And now moving on to the history of mental health care for Black Americans. In 1848, John Galt, a physician and medical director of the Eastern Lunatic Asylum in Williamsburg, Virginia, offered that, quote, Blacks are immune to mental illness, end quote. Galt hypothesized that enslaved Africans could not develop mental illness because as enslaved people, they did not own property, engage in commerce, or participate in civic affairs such as voting or holding office. This immunity hypothesis assuming assumed according to Galt that others at the time, excuse me, this immunity hypothesis assumed according to Galt and others at the time that the lack of quote lunacy would be highest in those populations who were emotionally exposed to the stress of profit making, particularly wealthy white men. Hmm. I'll let that sit for a second. For people of African descent, little or no references of mental illnesses were available before the 1700s. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who are, we are revisiting with much to our chagrin, Here was the comes. leading medical authority in the nation during the years immediately following the American Revolution. He was also the most prominent medical practitioner to disagree with John Galt's ideas about the absence of mental illness among black slaves when he wrote that many of the enslaved suffered from, quote, abnormal behaviors and quote, including, quote, negritude, which he described as the irrational desire for blacks to become white, which is like a which is like a weird, insanely racist and offensive take on penis envy, I feel. I just thought that popped uh, into my head right then. Since becoming white could only be accomplished by interbreeding, Rush argued against intermarriage between races to ensure that negritude would not spread beyond the black population. There was no indication that he ever treated anyone for this disease in any of his notes or in any of his documentations. Um, a much lighter fun fact and a better use of this word that was created is uh, negritude, which... Uh, was also an anti-colonial cultural and political movement funded founded by a group of African and Caribbean students in Paris in the 1930s who sought to reclaim the value of blackness and African culture. There is believed to be no connection to Russia's diagnosis. Good. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously that was even difficult reading that. I, yeah. Um, other antebellum medical researchers promoted conditions such as um, drapetomania, a disease that caused slaves to flee their uh, plantations or dysynthesia Ethiopia. It's not important because it's nonsense. A disease that purport, um, purportedly caused the state of dullness and lethargy, which would now be considered depression. 
Modern historians of slavery have described both conditions as understandable responses to enslavement, but white medical practitioners at the time assumed they were manifestations of mental illness. So we obviously still see judgments like this with that are even that don't even have less ridiculousness to them being placed on uh, poor black black and just general poor populations because the refusal to recognize that oppression exists would make some people's brains explode. Mm. Also, people that are so highly privileged do not feel that oppression exists because they have either never experienced it or they feel that they have earned it by simply existing. And this is a good example. Yeah, I mean, this is just an example of how establishments and like how systems can be racist and and how like that came from our profession. So it's really important to know these things because it's so easy for minority groups to be victimized by large, larger systems. Exactly. And that's that's really what many movements are about currently. You know, when we're doing this episode in June 2021, when talking about racist systems in law enforcement, in education, in psychology, in healthcare, in politics, it, generally when things, when racism is just woven into the infrastructure, it is going to be, it's not going to be uh, longstanding helpful for everybody, for all the constituents. All right. Most pre-Civil War mental health facilities in the South usually barred the enslaved from treatment. Quote, experts believed that housing blacks and whites in the same facilities would detrimentally affect the healing of the whites. Housing conditions in Southern asylums for the few that accepted the enslaved were bad enough for white patients. The black patients were often housed outdoors near these institutions or in local jails. Housed in jails, yes. There are accounts for some child slaves being cared for in the yards of the asylum. Most of these facilities were run without government funding or oversight and inmates, as the children were called, inmates, as the children were called, were regularly misdiagnosed and wrongly accused of crimes, extending their stay in these institutions and exposing them to additional mistreatment by authorities. And since we have both worked in healthcare with young children, I mean, I definitely, in my experience, have, have seen just how differently the young black children are treated and how they are much more likely to be put inpatient than their peers, their white peers. Not because not because symptoms are stronger, not because their behavior is less manageable, because teachers and healthcare professionals have a much less tolerance for dealing with black and brown children. My only comment on this paragraph is housed in jails. Housed in jails. Mm-hmm which yeah. still happened. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. The Civil War freed nearly 4 million enslaved people across the South. It did not, however, lead to more enlightened attitudes about the treatment of African Americans with mental illness. In 1895, Dr. T.O. Powell, the superintendent of the Georgia Lunatic Asylum, observed an alarming increase in insanity and consumption, which is tuberculosis, among the Black patients in his state which he attributed to three decades of freedom. He argued that freedom causes caused them to have little or no control over their appetites and passions and thus led to excesses and vices, which in turn generated a rise in insanity. That's their term. 
Like medical experts before him, Powell did not factor in socioeconomic conditions, including poverty, racial discrimination, and the ever-looming specter of violence, including lynchings, which reached a high point in the 1890 to 1920 period, as playing a role in the mental state of these freed people. Again, just a blind, blind to very, very obvious common sense. And I say obvious with confidence because... I can imagine we would be gaslit if we were living during this time, we'd be gaslit into thinking that this was normal, just as we still are. Yeah. And I'll say as being somebody who is educated in the North, my understanding was that, oh, abolitionists were not racist, but that those two words do not correlate at all. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, if we're going to get into if we ever discuss critical race theory too i mean that's just another way in which in which history is fed to us in a different way because abolitionists while i mean yes they existed for a certain reason but there's also a lot of folks who are just freeing people so that they can teach them to live and learn and look and love and identify like them which is just like the definition of colonial mentality and colonialism absolutely I mean, yeah. I was taught that the Civil War was about states' rights. Uh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't tread on me, baby. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, the start of the 20th, and and I was taught that in like the 90s and 2000s. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's yeah. still being taught, kind of. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the start of the 20th century brought a new threat to African Americans, which was the eugenics movement. Starting in Great Britain, the movement quickly spread to the United States by the 1920s. Eugenics was based on two parallel principles, the encouragement of births among people who were considered, quote, good genetic stock, and the sterilization of people deemed unfit for reproduction, including individuals with mental illness, those who were poor, and those accused of sexual promiscuity and sexual criminality. Mm -hmm. Sterilization in the U.S. quickly focused on African-Americans. In California alone in the 1930s, African-Americans who comprised 1% of the population made up 4% of the victims of legal sterilization. 18 states eventually passed laws allowing for the widespread sterilization of the institutionalized, including many who are Black, misdiagnosed, and falsely accused of crimes. Although sterilization lost some of its appeal when it was discovered, Nazi Germany embraced the practice on a wide scale. By the 1970s, some states in the South, including notably North Carolina and Alabama, still sterilized disproportionate numbers of Black women who were declared by courts to be mentally defective. I had to reread that sentence so many times when putting this together. Mm -hmm. It said 18 states eventually passed laws allowing... I was yeah. like, I must have copy and pasted this incorrectly because, but no, I did not. Yep. Yeah. African-Americans were also victimized by uh, psychosurgery from the 1930s to the 1960s using lobotomies to treat mental illness. Starting in Europe, it quickly gained acceptance in the U.S. for reasons that were finally ruled as socio-political rather than medical by the late 1970s. Psychosurgery was promoted as a treatment for, quote, brain dysfunction, a diagnosis claimed to have led to widespread urban violence and inner city uprisings. Most historians and local scientists viewed urban violence and the uprising of the 1960s and a reaction to systematic oppression, poverty, discrimination, and state-sponsored physical violence, police brutality. 
Dr. Frank Irvin, a psychiatrist and two neurosurgeons, Drs. Vernon Mark and William Sweet, argued into the 1960s that this violence was the result of surgically was the result of a surgically treatable brain disorder and promoted their agenda as a specific contribution to ending the political unrest of the period. Postpartum depression, PPD, characterized by feelings of sadness, crying, and hormonal mood swings that happen after birth, can also be sometimes severe and result in anxiety, depression, and or rarely psychosis. The extreme form affects 20% of all races, but more than 40% of African-American women have been afflicted by it. The reasons vary, including lower socioeconomic status, emotional and financial distress, domestic violence, poor access to health care, single parenthood, and poor or inadequate child care. Although rarely mentioned in the mainstream news, PPD is another manifestation of mental illness in African-American women. If medical racism affected the mental treatment of African-Americans well into the 20th century, by the end of the century, medical practitioners were beginning to recognize the various socioeconomic factors that impact Black mental health. Yet cultural beliefs among African-Americans also impact attitudes towards and also impact attitudes toward the treatment of mental health in Black communities. Myths like it doesn't happen to us, we are strong, therefore we do not get depressed, our God is able, it is not our portion, and we can pray it away, are not simply misleading beliefs. They often create unnecessary barriers and stigmas to recognizing and treating mental illness among African Americans. I was hesitant to leave that paragraph in because it feels blamey. You know, it feels it feels kind of like if somebody's suffering from the the treatment that like a very fat phobic culture puts on them or somebody has imposter syndrome because people have told them all their lives that they're not good at something or they aren't capable then what what the fuck else is going to happen to how mm -hmm. they view themselves and how they respond and also I would certainly not rely on any kind of institution um, so yeah while well, that was important again I felt hesitant I don't know if you have any thoughts on that I mean I think it's extremely important to take into account the culture of everybody that you're treating. And mm -hmm. I mean, as a white therapist, I have to remember that my culture is not everybody's culture so that people might have different attitudes towards their mental health treatment and that I, that I need to be informed of that if I'm going to proceed with them as like a client or a patient. That's beautiful. I, I'm trying to remember the name of that. The seminar we went to, Joanna. Yeah. I was just on uh, frequency of depression among African-American women. Um, and they were talking about bringing in, bringing in different folks that would be more helpful into treatment teams that would make, make patients more trusting and also just bring like actual legitimate healthcare because we, because, um, Western healthcare is like so supremacist, but that's a really good point. I'm glad yeah. you said that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, join us after the break as we talk to Juliana about being a writer and a therapist. I'm so excited. Alrighty, welcome back. Today we have Juliana Collins, MSW and LSW. She is an outpatient therapist at Inner Balance Psychology in Philadelphia. She works with a wide variety of concerns and specializes in working with and treating trauma, grief, community violence, and substance abuse. She is studying to become a clinically licensed social worker and has been writing since she was in elementary school and attended a creative and performing arts middle and high school for creative writing. 
Now, Juliana is a staff writer with Therapy for Black Girls. She has recently been trained as a birth doula and hopes to put that into practice in the future, along with postpartum doula work. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. Yes, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> Julian, I am pumped to hear about everything Joanna just read about. So could you tell us a little more about your work? I mean, there's a lot that you have going on. Is there anything specifically that you'd like to share with us? Um, so yeah, I am working currently at Inner Balance Psychology at a private practice full-time. Um, I'm working both in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. Um, and so I specialize with mostly working with complex trauma, um, more specifically like domestic and sexual violence, um, grief and loss, some mood disorders, substance abuse, and community violence. Um, I work with kids, adults, families, couples alike, whoever is wow. ready and wants it. I'm here. Awesome. Um, and then so with therapy for black girls, I generally write like monthly their blog okay that's that's so neat could you I think that this is something that I'm curious about and other people would be could you talk a little bit about the difference between complex trauma and I mean what we just what we just call trauma day-to-day is there a Mm -hmm. distinction yeah I think that complex trauma um you know so it's something that usually develops from um multiple traumas right so kind of from something that's been compounded and you know it's like a pot that boils over right like things kind of have their limit people only can kind of take so much right before the things that they have been through and the things that they've experienced really start to affect like their day-to-day and their functioning how has the pandemic affected your day-to-day and what you do yeah that's um that's a great question it's something that i've actually been thinking about a lot recently uh because it's I sometimes still just can't believe like what we all just lived through um and are still kind of coming out of so I think for me the biggest adjustment was which I think was an adjustment for many people was working from home um so for the majority of the pandemic I was living in a studio apartment a very tiny tiny Mm. studio apartment um And so that was really hard. Um, But so also for the majority of the pandemic, I was just part-time at the private practice. Um, And then I was full-time at a nonprofit, primarily working with co-victims of homicide. So I think I never really realized um, just how important it is to have some separation (laughs) between, you know, that intensive work in my home. Um, And I didn't even have like a separate room to go into, right? Like I was kind of living and working in the same really small space. Um, So I think that was the biggest way that my day-to-day with work has been affected. Um, I just think that sometimes it was really overwhelming to just sit in all of that all day, every day. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's such a great answer. That's what we value as therapists is that drive home or, you know, whatever transitional activity we use and giving therapy next to your bed or next to your like, you know, kitchen table. It's definitely something we weren't prepared for. Right. Right. How do you think your personality is represented in your work? Uh, well, I like to think that I'm kind of funny. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that my humor and my sarcasm definitely comes out in sessions. And 
I don't know if either of you can relate to this, but some of my clients are just like the funniest people that I've ever met (laughs) in my life. They are so funny. They have, um, such, you know, like a unique kind of perspective and way that they view the world. Um, and I think that humor is just like a coping skill for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's a really important one. So, um, that's kind of something that comes out in sessions. Um, and, you know, I, I have other passions outside of mental health. Like I'm mm-hmm. passionate about like maternal health um, and like racial equity, which I think a lot of my clients also sort of are. So we can connect on that level too. Um, you know, because in my opinion, you can't really do social work and be a social worker and not be political. Like I think that they're so intertwined. Yes. Um, and, and so I am political and I have really strong opinions and so do my clients. And it's mm-hmm. really cool that we're able to kind of talk about some of these things, especially in this last year with, you know, just the, um, with everything that was happening in our society. Um, and, you know, so it's really cool that we're able to like intersect and connect on that level. Um, and so really, yeah, I just like to make sure my clients know that like I'm a human too. Uh, and that I don't necessarily, and I think it's hard to totally avoid that, like hierarchy of therapist client. Mm -hmm. Like it's really hard to do that, but as much as possible, like, I don't want that to exist. I did like that, you know, doing teletherapy sessions removed a little bit of that hierarchy, just cause like I'm from, I'm talking from home and you're talking, like, you can Mm -hmm. see my space. I can see your space. (laughs) We both have bad internet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the lights now it turned off. You can see I'm wearing jeans. Sorry. Uh. <laughs> Juliana, we had talked with someone before who is in the recovery community and she's, she's Latinx. So then she was talking about how the need for like BIPOC recovery community really rose a lot last year. Like folks were like, okay, I'm done going to these like white institutions. Did you experience more folks reaching out for women of color therapists? Yes. Yes. Um, And yeah, that was something that when I transitioned to full-time at the private practice, I was honestly like a little nervous that I would not be able to reach that population as much and work Mm -hmm. with other black people and other people of color. Um, But that has actually been totally false and sort of just like, you know, I sought out a black therapist, a black woman therapist years Mm -hmm. ago that I still work with. People are doing the same thing. Um, so I think that's been, yeah, I've definitely seen that. Mm -hmm. So cool. Great. What do you love most about being a therapist and what's the most difficult thing about being a therapist? Yeah. Um, well, I sort of have this belief that therapy is like a partnership. Like I feel very much like I'm just in a lot of intimate relationships, but intimate in the sense that they just involve a lot of like emotional vulnerability Um, And so I think that's what I really like about the work that I get to witness people just evolve and blossom. Um, And I think I sometimes struggle to be vulnerable and I don't like to not be in control of my vulnerability. Um, So it's really great practice to help other people like feel safe in that vulnerability. Uh, So I think that's what I love about it. What I find difficult, um, I think, is that I feel that there are just limitations in my role as a therapist. Um, There's like this one side of me that 
feels like there are ways that maybe I could make a wider impact, like more on like a community-based level, for example. But then I sort of have to remind that part of myself that there is a lot of power in just offering a safe space um, to one person or like one family. Um, and that I have to kind of remind myself, like I have a caseload, so I am kind of impacting an, you know, a group of people. Um, and then I'm just one person, right? So yeah. Mm-hmm. Gentle reminder for everyone that is in therapy or is a therapist, you are just one person. That's <laughs> yeah, or an A person to, to be more specific. What do you think drew you into being a therapist? Yeah. Um, so you kind of, you mentioned in the, the intro, but like I've been writing since I was little. So I used to always want to be a writer. Like I was like, I want to be a Pulitzer Prize writer. Like that was my goal. Um, but then somewhere along the way, I think that changed. Um, and, you know, but not totally because I do still write, but that just, I sort of realized was not all that I wanted to do. Um, and so for most of my life growing up, my dad was a family therapist. Um, so I sort of feel like some of that was just in me. Um, and I always had an interest in that. I always thought it was fascinating. Um, but I also have always really loved to kind of observe people, uh, and just learn about people and their backgrounds and just like, why are people the way they are? What makes you do this? What makes you do that? Um, and so with that, I also sort of went through a lot of my own trauma and certain experiences in high school. And I started going to therapy and I was like, wow, like I was obsessed. I loved going to therapy. I wanted to go to therapy all the time. <laughs> um, and I just sort of liked that power of human connection through therapy, sort of what I mentioned a few minutes ago. And just the space that it allowed me to explore myself. And so I kind of wanted to be able to offer that to other people at some point. I, I loved my therapist when I was a teenager. <laughs> I was like, can we, can we just like talk on the phone? I don't know. I just feel for some reason, I feel so good when we talk. <laughs> that's amazing that you had a good experience in therapy. Yeah. I think that's important. Cause then also if you don't have a good experience, like mm -hmm. that can totally taint what you know, your image of therapy is or what you think therapy should look like. Mm -hmm. What are most people's reactions when you tell them that you're a therapist and how do you wish they would react? Oh my God. The like classical, but true example is, you know, oh, are you about to psychoanalyze me right now? You know? Mm -hmm. And I always like politely laugh and say no, but you know, I really want to say like, I, I, wasn't going to, but now that you asked, like, that is something I want to do because that's a weird thing to say. Um, but, and also I sometimes get almost like a sympathy response from people like, wow, like that must be so difficult. Uh, and you know, it's like nobody died. Like I love the work that I do. You know, I think every work can be difficult in its own right. Um, so I don't necessarily have like a specific wish for how people would respond but I think it would just maybe be nice if the response was a little more neutral uh without the assumptions behind it yeah 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 that's that's fair like no idealization or devaluing no no weird pity yeah 
<laughs> and no like fear that you're trying to be crafty and get in somebody's mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm. like yeah. should I I don't know <laughs> and also like oh are you like accounting me right now <laughs> I'm not working right are you teaching <laughs> yeah. me yeah. yeah nobody says that right nope how has your identity helped or hindered your practice um so yeah definitely what I sort of touched on a few minutes ago just about um my worry when I started going into private practice full-time just that I wouldn't be able to work with as many people of color uh but that's been really encouraging to just kind of see that more people of color are accessing therapy um I think you know I'm someone I identify as like a straight straight woman um but I'm an ally to the LGBTQ plus community. So I think that has really, um, that's allowed me to work with that population a lot more. Um, but I also have had experience where I have clients that um, are on, you know, the LGBTQ plus spectrum and identify as such and don't totally feel comfortable talking to me about certain things related to that, which is valid. Um, you know, I think just like a person of color, maybe that wouldn't feel comfortable talking to like a white therapist about some things. Um, yeah. So it's been interesting. Like a mixed bag. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. How do you approach self-care? Yeah, I think that, I think self-care is whatever you make it, right? Like, um, I don't think it has to be like expensive. It doesn't have to be lavish. Um, my only stipulation is that it has to involve you putting yourself first. So whether that's like you, you know, saying no to plans for the night and just like staying in or, you know, taking a nap before getting work done, like it can be anything just that, just that it involves you putting yourself first, putting your needs first. Um, and recognizing that you have to do that in order to be able to kind of pour out in the ways to other people and your environment in the way that you want. Do you feel like your approach to self-care changed after or during the pandemic? Um, oh, that's a good question. My hunch was to say like, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think the pandemic sort of forced a lot of it. The pandemic kind of forced away a lot of people's coping skills in ways that they would kind of self-care you know like going out with friends or going out to the bar for a drink or out to eat um and so I think yeah we all sort of had to recognize that there are a lot of other ways we can take care of ourselves we just have to figure out what that looks like um so I think it's maybe just like broadened um what my idea of self-care could look like I'm gonna piggyback off of that too in the doula work I mean, as a woman, has your approach to self-care changed, you know, once you got into that field and you started working it like with more maternal based cases, did that change at all for you? I mean, any mindset at all, I'm asking. Um, yeah, I think so. I think, I think getting trained as a doula really opened my eyes to, um, I guess just the societal, what's the word? the societal um, emphasis like on the baby, right? Which <laughs> there should be emphasis on the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think it really opened my eyes to the fact that there wasn't a lot of emphasis on like mom uh, Mm -hmm. and like her emotional and physical well-being, you know, before, during, after, Um, not a lot of emphasis on how much this person's life changes in like literally a matter of minutes. Suddenly, Mm -hmm. like there's this human that you are taking care of for the rest of your life. Um, so I definitely think just, just especially, yeah, women and people identifying as women and moms or people in the role of mom, uh, really kind of putting themselves first too. That is such a good, I never even thought about that. I, I mean, obviously a little bit, but they're essentially treated like a vessel, right? I mean, talk about Mm -hmm. idealizing and devaluing that's definitely moms. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Well, and then also your life changes and then your body is going through like intense hormonal changes. Right. Trauma. Yeah. I mean, just because so many people have done it doesn't mean it is body trauma. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Moving on to a little, little lighter question. Every time <laughs> we read this, I'm like, we should move this question from after self-care. What is a pleasure of yours that is not necessarily guilty, but you wouldn't share it with people maybe the first time you meet them, except for right now, because you're going to share it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I can't lie. I can't lie. Mm-hmm. My guilty pl- pleasure is the Kardashians. Like, I, <laughs> it's because I think it's so far from my reality. Like, it's mm-hmm. so ridiculous to me at times that it's just really entertaining um, mm. and mindless. Uh, I also, I, I really am into skincare. That's sort of like my self-care. Uh, so I also watch these like stupid celebrity go to bed with me videos <laughs> uh, that just show like a very, a lot of time, like a very lavish, like extensive routine that like an average person just does not have time for or mm-hmm. money for. But I love it. I love watching those. I could watch it, watch them for hours. Wow. So they sound very satisfying. Yeah, I've never yeah. heard of those before, and I'm definitely gonna watch like 20 of them after we're done. Yeah, that sounds we'll amazing. Send a list. It'll be an email blast of our favorite go to bed with me routines. Yeah. I'll just be texting Sarah like, "Oh my gosh, this one, this one, yep, here we go." <laughs> Sarah, do we want to share share any or? Oh, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like I have bared my soul. <laughs> <laughs> as far okay, as I'll, my pleasures uh okay I'll bear mine okay um I eat the same breakfast every morning and it's been the same breakfast this is really weird all right so everybody 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 chill out already okay disclaimer <laughs> breakfast for like eight years okay. and it's two eggs and a bagel what kind of bagel it'll be everything it'll be plain or it will be cinnamon raisin and I will Ooh. not deviate or I com- combine those and make like a pork roll, egg and cheese, because I'm from New Jersey and I can't help myself. But there's always <laughs> a bagel and two eggs. It's unless I got to get up stupid early. It's, it's always going to be the situation. And for a couple of years, my husband was like, you're going to have insane cholesterol. That's, that's you know, our, our society doesn't like carbs. And you know what? The doctor, my doctor has never said that anything is wrong. <laughs> Everything is fine. And I'm going to, and I ate the breakfast an hour ago and I'll eat it tomorrow. <laughs> that's my that's my weird pleasure I don't think that's too weird I think you might be being a little hard on yourself 
That's definitely possible. I'm also like thinking of, this is a nice time to share that, but five years ago, if a woman touched a bagel, I think we'd like hmm. slap her hands away. <laughs> yeah. And now that we are becoming, you know, a little, a little less, I mean, not, not that much, but a little less obsessed with like thinness and mm-hmm. like toxic wellness and dieting. And so I'm like, eat my goddamn bagel. I had one go. before this interview. So, oh my gosh, yeah, so did I. <laughs> See, <laughs> I went to a bagel like store and quality. Oh, yeah, bagels. I had a really but good multi green bagel. I'm glad that we're in a friendlier time for bagels. Yeah, agreed. I guess my <laughs> guilty pleasure, but most people know it, is uh, drinking half lemonade half iced tea if you mm. follow my instagram you got a whole series on it uh <laughs> a oh, friend was like you was should talk about this oh it's a series uh that i started during the pandemic to just like be okay uh, mm. and also because <laughs> if you talk to me about them i will talk about them for an hour because i have a lot of thoughts and ideas and opinions about i call it half and half which has messed my family up thinking I just drink like half cream, half <laughs> milk. But no, like, why would I drink that? But now <laughs> they all so you, know. You are describing an Arnold, Arnold Palmer, correct? Yes. Yeah. An Arnold okay. Palmer. And I recently had a spin drift uh, seltzer. Not good. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my favorite right now is the Whole Foods brand. They changed, they changed their formula, which is how much I drink it that I noticed changes in formula. It used to be Trader Joe's, but they changed their formula for the worst. So again, could talk about this for an hour. <laughs> Amazing. Maybe it's a bonus episode. It's just me talking. What oh. is, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to poke fun at me and that's okay. it <laughs> nothing else <laughs> okay <laughs> just like that yes <laughs> all right carry on <laughs> what is your least favorite therapy phrase uh, yeah that that was a that's a hard question I think sometimes while I think there is a lot of uh gosh, I just lost the word. There's a lot of value, right? So the the idea of like connecting to our breath, deep breathing, breathing through things. Sometimes it's just like not so helpful to hear. (laughs) Um, I think that especially if something is going on, that's like pretty intense for someone and really overwhelming. um, It's just like not always the best thing to hear. I don't think it kind of reminds me of like being told to calm down sometimes Mm. like yes yeah do not tell me to calm down because then I won't be calm right and it's like (laughs) if you tell me to kind of like focus on my breath sometimes it can make you kind of like hyperventilate almost and it's like am I breathing correctly am I right so Mm -hmm. um I just I think there's just a lot of other things sometimes that we can tell people when they are in like an emotional overwhelm um yeah yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. And it is absolutely like, calm down or stop being so anxious. Like we have a, a switch to flip. That mm-hmm. We have yet to utilize. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even for some like panic disorders and some traumatic experiences, that kind of deep breathing can be pretty activating. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, especially if your stress response is freeze, then like deep breathing can be even more triggering because it's yeah. like triggering you into that. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your favorite therapy outfit? <laughs> uh, literally anything involving a cardigan. Um, yes. And therapy offices are always <laughs> so cold too. Like my um, office is always freezing. Um, so if you don't have like a plethora of cardigans to choose from, then I kind of question like, if, are you a therapist? What's going on? <laughs> and they, they have to have pockets because yeah. like sometimes women's dress pants also heads up women dress pants maker, please put pockets in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I, I need to have pockets. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to put my chapstick somewhere. Yeah. I'm compulsively applying. <laughs> cardigan heard that's a good one <laughs> well because we were talking about breakfast what is your favorite breakfast uh, okay yeah my favorite breakfast is pancakes ever since I was a kid um my friend's parents we met in preschool we went to the same preschool and they have this memory of me coming to preschool sometimes and just being like psyched if I had pancakes for breakfast I would walk in and tell people like guess what I had for breakfast pancakes like so excited about it um and yeah I still get pretty excited about pancakes you like to put anything in your pancakes or on top of your pancakes I don't usually which is weird because I really love fruit I love fruit but I don't really like a lot of fruit in my pancakes it's like a little too sweet um but weirdly I like chocolate chips in my pancakes sometimes I don't think that's weird. <laughs> well, I just, it's, very it's normal. like, that's not sweet, but fruit sweet, you know, it's a little, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. but yeah, I really like chocolate chips on them sometimes. Mm. Yes. All right. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Yeah. So cliche, but invisibility would be one just Ooh. because mm. I do like to observe um, and I could be a fly on the wall anytime I want. Um, so I think that would be cool. Um, but another one I thought about was like element manipulation. Like, I think it would be so cool to be able to control the weather, right? If I want to go to the beach one day and it's supposed to rain, turn that around, um, or always have like my glass of wine perfectly chilled by the pool. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I've never heard that answer that question. And that's amazing. So good. (laughs) God damn it. Our minds keep changing about yeah. what the correct answer is. Yeah. It's interesting. I <laughs> yeah, used to ask, that a, one. <laughs> I used to ask this question a lot with adolescents and like a lot of times they said invisibility, like, so they could rob banks or like, <laughs> you know, like break it. Like, okay, sure. <laughs> but I, I, I appreciate your invisibility uh, reasons. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. I really like the idea of element manipulation. Mm-hmm. That would be great. That'd oh be man, great. and your food would never be like your food would always be the perfect temperature. Perfect Ooh, temperature. Yeah, and not like microwave warm, like just mm-hmm. out of the oven warm. <sighs> I like that. Yes. And like it would always just be like 70 degrees wherever I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like nice. slightly cloudy. 70 degrees. Bring the cardigan with you. Um, what's something that's not related to your professional life that you're really excited about right now? Yeah. Um, so last month, uh, my boyfriend and I moved in together. 
Congratulations. congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's really exciting. And it's honestly the happiest and most free that I felt in a relationship, which I think for a long time, I didn't think was going to be a thing for me in my life. So it's really exciting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That is so cool. Oh my gosh. Congrats to both of you. That's amazing. And and I I see that awesome cat tower behind you. Yeah. You see her little paw hanging out over the edge. (laughs) Just so chill. I thought that that was a... Oh, oh, there we go. (laughs) We have have a similar cat tower. Good good taste. (laughs) Are there any resources you feel like everybody should know about? Um, One thing I thought about, um, this is very like Philly specific, but mm-hmm. the mental health delegates, um, I think that's a really important resource because it's an alternative to calling the police in a mental health crisis. Um, so it's like a 24 hour resource. Um, you can sort of get some like, you know, crisis counseling. Um, there is, I think it can kind of be dependent sometimes on like weather, staffing, but there is like a mobile crisis team that can come to your house um, if you are in a mental health crisis and kind of evaluate, kind of determine what the next steps would be. Um, and yeah, that's a great way to, you know, ask for like a wellness check rather than calling the police. Um, they can help refer you to a crisis center, give you information on mental health resources in the city, um, things like that. So I think it's a really a good resource for people to know about. That's wonderful. And yes, we will mention that repeatedly on this show, certainly use resources available to you before calling the police. Mm -hmm. It takes two seconds to Google resources, please. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are great. Juliana, did you want us to also uh, use therapy for black girls as a resource? Yeah, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is something totally new. Uh, Juliana, do you have any questions for Sarah or I? before our final question I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't tell you we would be doing this <laughs> I also am putting Sarah on the spot because I didn't tell her she would be doing this I'm putting myself on the spot because it's something I just thought of right now so <laughs> yeah I mean I think I would really like to know what um how how you two started this podcast like how did this come about um because I I thought that was so cool having like a Philly-based therapy podcast cool uh i I texted sarah do you want to do a podcast (laughs) (laughs) i had been thinking about it for a while because my husband and i tried to do a podcast at arguably the most uh traditional point in our lives so it just like never went anywhere because we did it like when we moved and got married and bought a house and like because we did those in like three months um and so I had all the equipment and I was like, Sarah, I think we should do a podcast together. It would be really fun. Uh, and then I probably responded immediately unless it was after 9 p.m. And then I responded <laughs> at 8 a.m. the next day. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we both we both had a big transition in our career at the same time. You know, I had been planning on going into opening my own private practice during the pandemic. And Joanna you know, had a similar situation at work where she was just, you know, done and we were both experiencing burnout. 
and I had been doing a lot of research on passive income and I was reading about podcasts and I was like, oh man, I don't know if I could ever do that. I don't know if I could ever, you know, get passive income from that. And then Joanna texted me like that day when I was having that thought and I was like, That's fine, I'll, <laughs> I'll do this really cool opportunity. And we just, we also like similar to what you were saying, Juliana, about just seeing how inaccessible therapy feels for folks. Mm -hmm. So we decided to make it for healthcare professionals to just kind of like get a, get a platform post pandemic and during pandemic and for potential clients to be able to listen and be like, Oh, they're people. They're not going to try to, um, you know, like colonize me or oppress me. They just want to help me. They want to be kind, you know, the face of therapy is changing and Mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're very passionate about that. That's awesome. And I have to say, and this might sound a little creepy, you both have really great podcast voices too. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> no, that's not creepy at all. That's no, very thank nice. You so thank much. you. <laughs> no, we, I, I'm certainly like, we talked about that in the beginning. We both have like a little bit of anxieties to overcome. And this is very helpful with that. And hearing one. that is <laughs> thank a you. big boost. So thank you. Because I, I feel like we all think that we sound so weird when we sure. hear ourselves being recorded. Um, but no, you have really great podcast voices. Thank you. Yeah. Most of, I mean, if I would love to continue chatting with you socially, <laughs> but I mean, if we ever talk, <laughs> nothing is ever creepy. Like no, yeah, <laughs> nothing ever creeps us out. It, it, it takes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's um, good to know. Yes. I'll also say that like the thing that excites me about this podcast is that if it goes nowhere and like, you mm-hmm. know, we just it's conversations with other professionals that I don't think I would have either. Right. So that's like, what's also great is that I just get to talk to people about breakfast and <laughs> also like decolonizing mental health. So like, it's a cool. Yeah. yeah you build a network. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Good question. Good question for Thank being you. on the spot. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's our final, would you rather question? It is breakfast related. Uh, Would you rather only eat caviar for breakfast for the rest of your life or only eat jelly filled donuts for dinner for the rest of your life? Uh, Oh my God. I think it would, I can't even believe I'm saying this. I think it would be the caviar for breakfast for the rest of my life. Uh, Because again, my sweet tooth is like very small. I can, I just get overwhelmed. So I couldn't imagine having to eat just one jelly filled donut for painful dinner. And then for the rest of my life, I don't think. That so could you could eat, you could eat more than one donut. Cause it says donuts. So mm. I guess the equivalent that you need to feel full, which uh, is too. Yeah. I don't think that would work for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to say similar because I, yeah I think I could just like eat the caviar and like get over with it like have an egg sandwich for lunch and like be like okay this is fine right. yeah I, I feel like a salty breakfast is not the worst thing in the world and I'm mm-hmm. the same I can't eat too many sugary snacks or feel like nauseated so mm-hmm. same answer there we go I like not being challenged for once by this question Joanna thank you do you want me to pick another one <laughs> no, <laughs> only if you want Maybe one more. Sure. Okay. Let's see. Okay. 
Would you rather have a flying robot that cleans your house? I don't know why it's flying, but uh, or a five star chef robot that cooks your meals? It also nah, says absolutely. a five star chef robot that cooks you meals. Oh, cooks you meals. <laughs> cooks you, me- yeah. Whatever. I think I would definitely guess. I would love to have five star meals every day. Um, cleaning can be very like cathartic for me. Like sometimes it you know, when I feel anxious or I'm overwhelmed, sometimes that helps me. And sometimes cooking stresses me out a little bit. So mm-hmm. I would love to have that taken off my hands. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I don't want anyone in my home, uh, robotic or otherwise, especially if they can <laughs> The robots are in. coming in your house. They are. Want, They're yeah, there. I mean, you I'm have the to cleaner. Pick my, my spouse is the, the chef. We're good. I, I don't like when <laughs> other people clean in my home. I don't like the way they do it. It's never know. right. And he doesn't like, he just lets me do dishes. I mean, like he does not want somebody coming in. And so I'm fine with, I'm fine with robot free, if I may. Okay. Well, you have to pick a robot. Oh, well, I'll pick one and then terminate it and find it work quickly. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. Mm -hmm. I won't leave Uh, it hanging. Okay. I think I would choose the cleaning robot for like the opposite reason, just because like <laughs> I do enjoy like cooking is very cathartic. And I think if like mm-hmm. things were, I mean, I think the flying part of it would be weird. Cause like, so only the one that cleans flies, right? Only the one that cleans flies. <laughs> huh. I don't know why it needs to fly. I guess to like get on other parts. Like, I guess that would be weird because I'm not, usually guessing like I'm not usually ready for flying things you know but <laughs> I, don't, I mean I guess it's better like I was I was thinking about getting a Roomba but I don't think our dog would appreciate it at all um so I guess like a flying robot could be away from her I don't know and it I mean, wouldn't get stuck under like the couch and you know you don't have to pull it out of everything maybe yeah did either of you ever see that picture? I think it started on Reddit and it was how the Roomba went over like a dog, a, like dog poop. Oh, yeah. On the whole home. No. <laughs> Look it up or don't. It exists. <laughs> it's out there. <laughs> yeah. Don't put a robot in your home. <laughs> Just right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think if I have any robots. I love those little dogs. Did you ever have one of those when you were a kid? No, I know what you're talking about, though. <laughs> the ones that would go, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> like, they are you talking about the ones that like do the backflip? Yeah. Yeah. I think I had yeah. one and a really big head. <laughs> Conducive for flipping. <laughs> All right, nice. All right. Well, thank you so much, Juliana, for speaking with us today. Thank you. This was a great way to spend the morning. Awesome. Let's just go eat more bagels and yeah. uh, <laughs> stay with us or after the break for our Therastory portion of the podcast and our goodbyes. All right. And now on to our portion of the show where we discuss a Therastory, which is a funny, ridiculous story that you as a client had in therapy or as you as a therapist had with a client. So mine was this actually, I remember this, Juliana, when you were talking about the breathing, mm-hmm. I had a client who I would just talk about breathing with a lot and how important it was. 
And one time we were in session and she was going through a lot of stress. And she said, what do I do? How do I handle this? And then she said, if you tell me to ground, I am going to lose my mind. <laughs> and I realized that maybe grounding was not the best method for all types of anxiety. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> uh, my third story is just also kind of hearkening back to what you were talking about, Juliana, about just like being real and being like authentic. I started a session and my client asked how I was and it was kind of clear that something was on my mind. So I was like, I better tell her. And it was because like my favorite yarn had gone on sale and I needed to buy some like as soon as possible. So that way the colorways that I wanted didn't sell out. And I was like, you know what? It's that my favorite yarn is on sale. So, (laughs) and it was fine. Nothing happened. No one got hurt. (laughs) I bought yarn and I was happy. Uh, Mine's a little... It's a little wild. Uh, okay. Like two years ago, uh, my boyfriend and then a good friend of mine, we had gone to a Phillies game. Um, and later that night, like I was just feeling really sick. Um, and also in the morning, getting ready for work. And we had like drank some. So I was like, maybe that's what's going on. Um, but I was, I went to work. I was so nauseous. I was in my first session and I just think I just had to have looked unwell. Um, and I could feel that I was like, oh my God, like I have to throw up in this session. <laughs> and my client kind of like looked at me and he's like, are you like, okay? And I was like, I'll be right back. And I ran out. Of course, someone's in the bathroom. It's like a one, you know, toilet situation. Someone's in there. I'm frantically looking for the key to the hallway bathroom. It's missing. Nobody knows where it is. And I'm running out of time and I run back into my office and just kneel behind my desk and puke in a garbage can, my client (laughs) sitting there. (laughs) And of course, the first thing out of his mouth, he was like, oh my God, are you pregnant? (laughs) I was like, no. "No." (laughs) And then I got sent home and yeah, it was like a stomach bug, but that was, Uh, that was awful. Oh my God. I don't even want to touch on the are you pregnant part because there's there's so much loaded in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. yeah wasn't my best wasn't my best day I love it <laughs> all right well Juliana thank you so much we had such a great time talking yeah, to you yeah thank you um we will definitely potentially be reaching out to have you on again. Um, we would love, we'd love to have some repeat interviewees. So uh, certainly we'd love to have you back. Thank you everyone for listening to the show. Be sure to rate review us on Stitcher and Spotify. You can check us out on Instagram at therapist next door or on Twitter at therapist ND pod, all one word, or visit our website at tndpodcast.com. If you would like ad free episodes, the ability to, Oh, sorry. Scratch that. If you would like the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests, uh, a community that you can post in and be a part of, and so much more, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. It is up now. It's live. You Ooh. can be there. You can also just support us if you want to support us. Um, and hopefully in the future, we'll have ad-free episodes. Uh, if you want to submit your Thera story, which is a funny or ridiculous story that you as a client had in therapy or therapy adjacent for us to read on the show, 
email it to therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com with their story in the title. Until next time, we We are your your therapists therapists next next door. door. (laughs) Nice.